0: Well, this morning I'd like you to uh, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, and we perhaps just gave you a Bible this morning, I looked and it's page 843, you'll find the New Testament book of Colossians. And as you're turning there, just by way of introduction, this morning we're going to be talking about the de-Christianization of the Christian church, which is a mouthful. The de-Christianization of the Christian church... So we want, the plan for the summer is going to be: we'll pick up Romans when summer is over, when you're done traveling, and when I'm done traveling. So we're going to talk about some important matters that are biblical matters to the life of the church at large and to this local church. And this morning, the de-Christianization of the Christian church. And let me get you thinking about that by asking you to think about the name Christian. Our religion is the Christian religion, and we say that, and we say it frequently, we say it often, we say it without thinking. But if you would by way of introduction this morning think about what that means the Christian religion Christianity Christian entity remind you that believers weren't always called Christians in fact in, in fact in acts 11 we see where the disciples of Jesus the followers of Jesus were first called Christians they were first called Christians and they were called Christians because they followed Christ. They were Christians because they trusted in Christ's perfect atoning sacrifice. They were Christians because they worshiped Christ. They were Christians because everything about them was about Christ. And so they were called Christians. As a matter of fact, it might be interesting to note that they weren't always called Christians because it was a compliment. These were the people who were so fanatical about Christ and they worshiped Christ and they talked about Christ and they prayed in Christ's name and they did everything all the time, all centering around Christ, that it would be those Christians, those Christians, those fanatics. Well, here we are. And now it's just normal. And we say, we're Christians. We're part of Christianity. But many times, sadly, what happens and what has happened in history is we forget that Christianity is all about Christ. We find ourselves maybe like those in that church in the book of Revelation where Jesus confronts them and challenges them and He says they have lost their what? Their first love. They're doing all the Christian stuff, but they're not doing it with Christ as central in their mind in everything. And this is a problem in light of Colossians 1.18. It's a problem in light of everything. But Colossians 1.18 is such a very helpful corrective as we're meant to be impressed with Christ like the early Christians. Look at Colossians 1.18 where it says, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then so amazingly that in everything He might be Preeminent. First place. Number one in everything. That's what Christianity is about. That's where the church is to have its focus. We are Christ. Fanatics. We love the fact that He came here to live a sinless life, obeying the law for us. We love the fact that He went to the cross even though He never sinned. He went there as if He were a sinner to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. We love the fact that He rose again from the dead on our behalf. We love the fact that He's promised to come again for us. We worship Christ. We are Christ fanatics in everything if we're Christians in more than name. Because Christ is preeminent for Christians in His church. This makes sense. Acts chapter 20, He bought the church with His own blood or His body. It makes sense that we would be all about Him. But sadly, we forget this and we lose sight of focus even as that church in the book of Revelation did. I like these rather stinging words from david wells commenting on this and i've quoted this a number of times over the years and i'll quote it one more time this problem of christ not being central in christianity which is a contradiction in terms this problem of christ missing as the focal point in the church today is not like the abduction of a child who happily playing at home one minute who is happily playing at home one minute and then no longer to be found the next no one has abducted christ in this sense The disappearance is closer to what happens in homes where children are ignored and, to all intents and purposes, abandoned. They remain in the home, but they have no place in the family. So it is with Christ in the church. He remains on the edges of evangelical life, but has been dislodged from its center. In other words, He's lost preeminence. In other words, we assume Christ. We assume His gospel And actually, we end up forgetting him and his gospel. So, this morning what we're going to do, and we'll do it next week as well, is we're going to look at a number of challenges to the preeminence of Christ that we face as a church and that the church in general faces. A number of challenges, there's eight on my list, it may grow, but there are eight for now of challenges that challenge the preeminence of Christ that threaten the life of the church at its very core, because the church at its very core is the Christian church, which means we're to see Christ as preeminent in everything. And so I have a list of eight isms, eight isms or errors that challenge preeminence in the church, the preeminence of Christ. And the the first one is on purpose, because I think it's the biggest one we face, and the biggest one evangelicalism faces at large. Let's call it moralism. Let's call it moralism. Just to quote a couple of modern-day prophets, if you will, using that in a lowercase p sense, some spokesman that might say, hey, wait a minute, moralism where you're telling people if they just follow biblical principles, they'll be okay, and they forget the gospel, let's deal with that. Al Mohler says this, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this, the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. The moralist impulse in the church reduces the Bible to a code book for human behavior and substitutes moral instruction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Far too many evangelical pulpits are given over to moralistic messages rather than preaching of the gospel. And if that was too much of a mouthful, mouthful for you, his essential point is we're going to be biblical, yes. Quoting Bible verses, yes. Following biblical principles, yes. Yes. And ignoring the gospel. Forgetting that we could never follow principles well enough. Because if we could, Jesus didn't need to come. Moralism, where if you're just daring to be a Daniel enough, God will accept you. If you're just trying hard enough to be like David, when he wasn't a fornicator, it'll be okay with you. And Al Moeller's saying, that's moralism. You've got to preach Christ. And then, yes, we'll want to do the right thing. Mike Horton, a little bit more stingingly, says, Whenever the story of David and Goliath is used to motivate you to think about the Goliaths in your life and the seven stones of victory used to defeat them, you have been the victim of moralistic preaching. That's a sermon spoiler. That's a, that, that's a, that's a quote to make enough pastors mad. Uh, we could have a whole pastor's conference who are mad at Mike Horton, I think. The same is true whenever the primary intention of the sermon is to give you a Bible hero to emulate or a villain to teach a lesson, like crime doesn't pay or sin doesn't really make you happy. Reading or hearing the Bible in this way turns the Scripture into a sort of Aesop's fables or Grimm's fairy tales where the story exists for the purpose of teaching a lesson to the wise, and the story ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Horton goes on to say in his screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis has screw tape, the older demon mentor writing Wormwood, the younger demon, in attempt to persuade Wormwood to undermine the faith by turning Jesus into a great hero and moralist. It's a fictional story, but Lewis is probably pretty wise in saying, oh yes, talk a lot about Jesus. Emphasize Jesus a lot. And if you're just a good enough follower of Jesus, teach that doctrine in the churches, Mr. Demon. Because they'll forget the gospel. And they won't have any forgiveness of their sins. Horton goes on to say, We say Christ alone in our doctrine of salvation, but in actual practice, our devotional life is saturated with sappy and trivial principles. And the preaching is often directed toward motivating us through practical tips rather than motivating us because of and response to the gospel. In my humble opinion for what it's worth, which probably isn't worth much, I think this is the biggest issue we face. This is the biggest issue in circles I run in. The biggest issue in churches like this church where we say we believe the Bible is true. We, we believe in, in inerrancy. We believe in inspiration. We believe in infallibility. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And so therefore, we want to do expository preaching and preach the Bible, every last word of it, which is all good and right. And before you know it, oftentimes, it's all about a book of principles that we must follow. And we forget that none of this can be followed apart from Christ's amazing work on our behalf. We assume the gospel and then our religion is not Christianity. It's moralism. And this is a major, major issue we fight and we face. Children's curriculum, it is really hard to find children's curriculum. Because it's all moralistic ditties. And yes, it uses Bible verses. It uses lots of Bible verses, but it's teaching kids if they just follow these principles from this person's life, at least the good ones, then it's going to be okay with them and God. And it assumes the gospel and that is not distinctly Christian because Christ isn't preeminent. And it's a challenge. I'm so thankful for teachers and leaders in that department working hard to say, this is good curriculum. This is okay curriculum provided we just make it Christian. But it's bizarre. And the same thing is true in pulpits. It sounds biblical. It feels biblical. Lots of Hebrew, lots of Greek, or whatever it might be. But it's not distinctly Christian. And therefore, it's not actually biblical. Moralism. Another example of this would be, and I've used this often and I'm going to keep using it. Sorry, I'll try to come up with new illustrations sometimes. When you ask someone, true or false, the essence of Christianity is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And 90% of the people say, yes, you know you've been a victim of moralism. Read Matthew 22. Jesus teaches that that is the essence of the law. The essence of Christianity is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I don't think so. That's the essence of the law. It's the essence... That's not Christianity. The essence of Christianity is that Jesus Christ, because we are so inept at following the law as rebels, that Jesus Christ came here and loved the Lord his God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, having done it perfectly, he went to the cross and paid for my rebellion against loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he rose again from the dead so that, yes, in response, I now do have the power and the ability to have that be my chief aim. But my friends, if you think that's the essence of Christianity, it just shows you've been victimized. Please don't misunderstand. I am all for loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that's not the essence of Christianity. And when we've gotten to the place where we are, where we think it is, there's a huge problem. We're not acting like Christians. We're not acting like Christians. Maybe shifting gears for another illustration. When I speak to teenagers who are professing Christians, large numbers of them, and I get out a $100 bill. I shared it with, some of, with some of you before. I steal $100 out of my wife's purse. <laughs> That's a whole nother principle, but anyway... <laughs> And I hold up a $100 bill and I say to the students, I have a $100 bill here. It's real. It's genuine. I promise that I will give it to you. If you are the first person to find a Bible verse, man, they, 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 they lock and load. They're ready. Bible's ready. Hundreds of kids. For the first one who finds the Bible verse that says, God helps those who help themselves. And it's like a windstorm. Man, they're going like crazy. I got to find the verse. It's a hundred bucks. And some students sit there, maybe with a smirk, maybe with a smile. And I would like to meet their pastor so I could give them a kiss on the lips. <laughs> Point being, that's not in the Bible that's paganism it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches it is so anti-gospel it's not even funny and I'm not talking about speaking at a secular school I'm talking about talking to hundreds of kids who are leaders in their organization showing up for leadership training it's not in the Bible it's you know third Oprah chapter 6 verse 66 it's paganism paganism. And I would like to find all the other kids pastors and not give them a kiss, but a pop in the jaw is what I would like to do. I'm not mad at those kids. I love those kids. I'm so thankful that they're there and I could fake them out. (laughs) Because now they're listening and they're paying attention. But my friends, we have a responsibility to our own selves before God not to mention the next generation not to mention the next generation to be explicitly Christian which means we don't assume Christ and we don't assume the gospel we are deliberate and purposeful about what it is because Christ is to have preeminence in everything in the churches the church belongs to him he's the hero it's not about moralism it's not about do-gooderism, try-harderism. And you might be saying, well, if we emphasize this, then people are going to do whatever they want to do and they're not going to follow any principles. Well, at least now you're thinking. <laughs> and we'll get to that another Sunday. But remember Romans 6 is taught after Romans 1 to 5 that it is so pushed in Romans 1 to 6 that it's all of Christ, 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 gloriously Christ, that people are asking the question does that mean we can live however we want we should be pushing people to ask the question and then we're going to say no we have some principles for you in light of the gospel because of the gospel but only in those terms i'm reminded of paul in galatians in galatians chapter 1 verse 6 where he says i am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of christ and are turning to a different gospel It just blows my mind. We just went over this, right? That it's Christ and Christ alone. He's the hero. He's central in everything. This is Christianity. And and you're still talking about Christ, but you're saying Christ plus these principles, i.e. laws. And he's like, what in the world is going on here? See, that's when it's most dangerous, when we're still using the name Christ. We're still using the name Christian. So this is just the burning passion for me, the burning heartbeat for me, and I want it to be for you. I want it to be till the day we die. Read history and see where it's not the burning passion, it's dead church. Empty church, not Christian church. Preaching Christ, his life his death, his resurrection, moralism. So we're not contributing to the de-Christianization of the Christian church. Let's move on to another one that's very similar, so we can do it rather quickly. Number two, legalism. Legalism, which is essentially moralism. You just do these things, and then God will accept you for justification, for sanctification, spiritual growth, whichever. It's legalism. I guess we don't even need another one. This could be morphed into the first one. Just... Believe in Jesus and do something, and then God will accept you. Instead of, because God has accepted you in Christ, because you're believing in Him, then you want to do the right thing in response. But legalism is always alive and well, because we always want to have our part and do our contribution. I'll just give one illustration of legalism that might be uh, a shocker, might not be. Who do you think, in your estimation, is the most popular, well-known Legalist alive on the planet. And we could debate this and it would be a church split, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> In my estimation, and I'm, I'm borrowing from the uh, insights of my court, and so I'll give them credit. The number one legalist on the planet today, here's a hint. Can't see that on the audio. <laughs> I've drank too much coffee to have it work, but if I had a million-dollar smile and a Texas accent and a big hairdo? Visualize, come on. <laughs> My name would be Joel Olstein. It is legalism to the bone at the very core. Now you, you might think, now wait a minute, legalism? He's nice. Legalists are those mean people who point the finger at you and they say, man, your hair's too long, you know? Women, you're short, you're, your dresses are too short, you shouldn't wear shorts anyway. Right? That's legalism. No drums. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that might be your grandparents' legalism. But that's not legalism today. Legalism today is essentially the same, but it has a big smile. But here's why it's legalism. Seven principles read laws that you follow and you will have your best life now read salvation no gospel that's legalism here's where I'm challenged why didn't I see that as legalism I think I should I think you should whenever there are principles to follow no gospel that leads to happiness It's legalism. And you know what? It's cruel. It's not loving. It's cruel. Because there's no power to do those laws. There's no gospel resurrection power, i.e. Romans 6 power. So it's not nice. It's mean. So what we want to do is we want to preach Christ, life, death, resurrection. And oh yes, because of what he's done, you want to do the right thing. You do want to follow him. You do want to worship him and praise him. But we want to be deliberate about Christ and what he's done and never assuming. Read the Bible and you will not see assuming the gospel. You'll see it all over the place, everywhere, deliberate, like all right already, what do you think this is? A religion or something? You know? It's, every, it's Christ, 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 Christ. Those Christians, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to another ism that might motivate us. This is kind of depressing, I know. We're going to have some counseling and some Prozac and some drugs afterward for you to take. We're not really... But it is depressing. But I want it to be depressing to the point of motivating. So that by the grace of God, we don't assume the gospel, we're deliberate about the gospel so that we might live another day as a church and maybe make an impact for the glory of Christ somewhere else. By the way, at the end, we're going to talk about solutions, so, and it won't be in the form of medicine. Number three, narcissism, narcissism, and that just means self-centeredness, but I needed an ism. So, narcissism is the next one. It's just being selfish. It's being self-centered. And good studies show us that the majority of teenage professing Christians think that the ultimate aim of their religion is self-fulfillment, happiness, feeling good about myself. And that shows that Not that the kids are a problem. They're not. The parents are the problem. They're pagans. And the pastors are the problem. They're pagans. Because for us to conclude that the ultimate aim of life, oh, the ultimate aim of Christianity is our feeling good about ourselves, just reveals that we don't know the first thing about Christianity. We don't know the first thing about the Bible. Push rewind for a second. You know, the button's here. Do we have rewind anymore? I don't think so. Uh, Let's go a few tracks back, okay? A few years. Every catechism on the planet worth its salt would start with this question. What is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That couldn't be more Christian couldn't be more right. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Some of you have written this verse on your heart already, so you don't need to turn there. But 1 Corinthians 10.31 is going to be a great text that says, that's true, that's right. And I realize some of you are nervous when you hear the word catechism. I am. I was catechized in a dead church that preached a false gospel. And some of you were as well. But even that clock, if it were stopped, would be right twice a day. Okay? Catechism is a good thing. It just means teaching, instructing, But we've forgotten what Christianity even is about, and we can learn even from those who went before us that it actually is, in the end, for the glory of God. It's not narcissistic. It's not, oh, uh, this is wonderful because it makes me feel better. It does make me feel better. I don't have guilt anymore. I know that God's bow isn't drawn with the arrow aimed at my head anymore. Legitimately. So I feel good. (laughs) Christianity makes me feel really good. Okay? Okay? Except when I have to take up my cross and deny myself and uh, do all the other things that Christianity doesn't make me feel good about, that I'm called to do. Point being, though, 1 Corinthians 10.31, what does it say? Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, whatever means whatever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's, it's the ultimate in everything. Why does God save people? To keep us out of hell. True. Ultimately, God saves people to show that He's a great Savior. Revelation chapter 5, everyone is there. Everybody knows this. Worthy is the Lamb. And then it says, who was slain. It's all in the end for His glory and His honor. And you say, how do I get to that place? How do I get to the place where I can see that everything's for the glory of God and Christ is preeminent in everything? Well, if you read Revelation chapter 5 and you see they're, they're there in heaven worshiping the Lamb, saying, worthy is the Lamb. You say, how can I, how can I get to that place? I know that that's right. Who was slain? You keep reading in the context who's redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and you start getting impressed with who Christ is and you start getting impressed with what Christ has done and you see that He's indeed a great Savior and all of a sudden you're saying it is all about Him and it overshadows everything else. Start reading your Bible and it'll just rock your mind how God-centered the whole thing is and narcissism is just paganism. Where the whole world revolves around me. The Bible ends up being God centered. It's interesting, you start in Genesis, and God creates people in his own image. That's for his glory and for his honor. And then you you start you read through the Bible and you think this this, this God acts like he's God or something. Right? God has a God complex because he does gracious and amazing things and merciful things but but as you just keep reading you see in the end ultimately this is for him for his honor for his glory and so i want to know that by the way we're catechizing your children if you have them might want to go get them <laughs> we want them to see how great christ is because he saves sinners And there's great personal affection in that, but we do want them to also understand it's to show that he indeed can save sinners for his glory and for his honor. And by the way, I'm catechizing you every single Sunday I could possibly preach. Fighting narcissism, trying to have us be impressed with the greatness of Christ and to think differently. It's for Him and it's for His honor. We'll get to Romans 12, I promise, someday. But when we get to Romans 12, 1, it's in response to the Gospel. And then He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I think mercies of God is code for Romans 1-11. to I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that is all of you, as a living sacrifice, right? Which is your spiritual service of worship. Oh, I give my whole life, all of me, that's what he means by body, in worship to God because he saved me. The ultimate purpose isn't about me. It's something way bigger. It's him. It's him. It's awesome. What's the chief end of man? That's a great question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if you want to push it a little bit, just to be a little radical here, maybe a lot radical, as John Piper helpfully asked the question What's the chief end of God? Answer? To glorify himself. What? There he is acting like God again. (laughs) You see? As this starts to click in your mind and it rocks your mind, you're starting to think like a Christian because you're not God and there aren't other gods think if there were five gods if there were five gods then God's chief end would be to glorify the five of them because there are multiple gods if we're all God we're all gods his ultimate end is we've got to divide it up divvy it up because we're all gods and so we're going to worship each other praise each other logically that's just how it works if there's only one God, it's all for him. So his ultimate motivation for everything he does, if there's only one God, is for him. Piper does a good job pushing this, and he's just kidnapped Jonathan Edwards on this, I think, who kidnapped the Apostle Paul on this. <laughs> for God to do it any other way, would be for God to be an idolater. Think about it. Because it would be God acting like there actually were other gods. There's only one. Now we're starting to have a Christian worldview. There's only one creator. There's only one redeemer. And his name isn't Pat. Praise God. It's all for him. Why do I do what I do in my life? It's for his glory and his honor, whether it's sports or school or education, which is school, (laughs) or whatever it is you're talking about. I like the psalmist again and again and again. Just one example would be Psalm 23 3. The psalmist has this figured out. (laughs) You know, the psalmist is saying, God help me, God do this for me but the psalmist has it figured out well enough to have good enough theology to say at various points in time, for your name's sake. Smart. I would really encourage you to add that to your uh, prayer repertoire. (laughs) God, please help me in this desperate situation because I'm desperate, because I need help, because I know you're merciful, because I know you're compassionate, because I know you're gracious, and it doesn't hurt once in a while to just Go for ultimate trump card. Do it for your namesake. Do it for your own fame. Do it to show yourself great. And do it because you're God. And you do all things ultimately for your own glory. It's so helpful. It changes everything. Okay, number four, and then we'll be done for this morning. Uh, a fourth ism that is not distinctly Christian. In fact, it undermines Christianity, even though we might still use the name Christ, and it would be called deism. Deism. I could give you a fancy definition of deism. I could name some of the founding fathers who were deists, and they were not Christians, but that probably wouldn't be helpful for now. Let me just make it simple. A deist is someone who believes in God, maybe one God, but this one God is not sovereign, and this one God is not personally involved. Two key words, sovereign, personal. And once again, the same study that uh, I've referenced uh, already and on multiple occasions that would interview teenagers in Christian homes. They can't, even though they say they're Christians, and I'm not putting the fault with them, I'm putting the fault with mom and dad and pastors and teachers who say they're Christian Those who have done the studies have had to say, actually, the way they explain their Christianity, the majority of them are explaining deism. They're not explaining Christianity. And deism and Christianity are different religions. Christianity has God being God overall, and He didn't just wind up the earth and walk away. He's overall sovereign in control of the big stuff and of the little stuff, and how about this? And He cares. He's personally involved in the details. That's the God of Christianity. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, which is sort of the ultimate verse when it comes to sovereignty and personal interaction. And then we'll reference a couple of other passages and we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 1 is great on sovereignty, but it's very personal because it's talking about salvation and it's talking about God saving individual sinners. And so it couldn't be more personal in this context in God caring for sinners. But look at Ephesians 1.11 where it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And in case you're not seeing it, all things according to the counsel of His will, that is a a massive declaration about God being sovereign and personal and not a deist. All things? That God is working all things according to the counsel of His will? What about luck? There's no such thing. Unless you're a deist. All things. We've talked about this at length before. I won't do it this morning. But He he works all things after the counsel of His will? Yeah, and that's why we have Romans 8.28. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purposes. And it's personal because you keep reading in 29 and 30. Couldn't be more personal. Or how about Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 where He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Relatively worthless birds. My dad would let us shoot them, and we couldn't shoot any other birds with our BB guns. That's general, general revelation supporting special revelation. My pagan dad acknowledging the truth of Scripture. Okay? <laughs> Who cares about the birds? Shoot them! Certainly God doesn't care. God's not in charge. And Jesus says, you want to bet? Not a single, relatively worthless bird falls from heaven, Matthew 10, apart from God's sovereign orchestration. And then you say, well, that's interesting, but give me some practical application. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He personally cares He's not the deistic, wind it up, walk away, not sovereign, do whatever you want to do, and things happen maybe for a reason, maybe not. Christianity is distinct about the sovereign, personal nature of God, and therefore we can trust Him. And I need to know that, because it's distinctly Christian, and you need to know that too, but we certainly have got to train the next generation in understanding this, and how about this, not assuming it, And certainly not assuming the preeminence of Christ. Hebrews 1 3, speaking of this great Savior, it says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It's all together because of Him, the preeminent one. Isn't it amazing, this world we live in? How does it all hold together? It's Christ. It's Christ. These four isms are not new. Read historical theology, read church history, and you think, wow, this sounds like today. they come up again and again and again and again and again and it makes all the sense in the world because if there is one savior whose name is Christ who is preeminent who is central to everything in one sense it's easy to derail the whole thing and so history is littered with examples of attacks on the main thing And if we can get the main thing to not be the main thing, Christ who is preeminent over all through all kinds of means, even through perhaps what looks like being biblical because we're using lots of verses, then Satan succeeds. And we're wasting our time. And this is a club. And if this is a club, I've got better things to do. And so do you. So my prayer, my literal prayer that I pray and have been praying is that we would not assume the gospel. That we would not assume the preeminence of Christ. That that drum would be beat again and again and again and again and again. And I don't mean that therefore at the end of every sermon you have to tack on a little evangelistic ditty to get all those unbelievers believing the gospel so we can move on with our Christian life. I don't mean that. Gospel, 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 gospel. Not in the form of a ditty, but because Christ is preeminent over everything in the church. And where we lose sight of that, we're not a Christian church or something else. So please, pray for your pastor. Pray for pastors. Pray for pastors in other countries. This issue was live and well in South Africa when I was just there. It's alive and well everywhere, because it's been alive and well ever since the beginning. And we will fight this, or we won't fight it, and we will have a dead church. What do you think this building would be good for? Halloween sales, right? Those seasonal things, Hobby Lobby. They could buy it, maybe. Christmas time, they could use it for Christmas sales. I don't know, Chad could figure out a good real estate option. But that's what it's going to turn into if we're not deliberate about the preeminence of Christ in all things. It's just a club, and what's the point? So let's love Christ. Let's go to our first love. Go to our first love. Go to our first love, and love Him for being the great Savior that He is, and live for His glory and for His honor. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for time to be reminded this morning of... of Pitfalls that that we fall into, and we have fallen into, and Christians before us have fallen into, and Lord, we don't want to stay in those holes and those pitfalls and those pits. So please help us, God, to go back to Christ and to keep reading our Bibles and to not assume things and not somehow think that we don't need Christ anymore because now we're saved, but that we would continue to go to Him for our sanctification, that we would continue to go to Him for our hope and for everything. And that we would trust you as a God who cares and who's in charge and who's in control and who looks out for us. And a God who does everything ultimately as God for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.